You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Good afternoon. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Varix, and today's uh, July 7th, 2018. Okay, let's just get started and get into the show. Um, first thing i like to say is if you can go to the, our website, www.conversationsandmeditations.com. Over there, you can find blog posts. You can find updates, um, updates for podcasts. Um, you can also email in your questions at ask at conversationsandmeditations.com. That's the email for asking questions. Ask at conversationsandmeditations.com. There you can you can submit your user questions. You can let me know what you think of the show. Um, and you can also give some suggestions to uh, you know some topics we can further cover on the show. Okay, so today I'd like to start off with just you know recapping the last show I had uh, with my good friend Misha. And something that we talked about and something that I ended on last time that I think I should probably get a little bit more in depth with. So I we talked about, uh, you know, it was kind of an interview of his beliefs on, you know, democratic socialism and his recent joining of the Democratic Socialists of America. And at the end of that talk, I did mention that I believe that capitalism has lifted the most amount of people out of poverty than any system in the world and has been the most prosperous and successful system in the world. Now, I just wanted to focus on that primarily because I feel that um, it isn't – I haven't really talked about it that much in recent shows or in the past shows and I haven't really gone into it. And I feel like this would probably be a good place and a good time for me to get into this and kind of break it down and see – and have you guys see my perspective and why I think capitalism is currently – uh, the best system and why I think today's system that we have, to, you know, in place today isn't really a, a viable or a good system. It leads to a lot of um, unforeseen and unfortunate consequences that uh, arise in our society. So, you know, over the last 250 years, you know, social experiment, we've been doing a social experiment in which economic systems work and which don't. Um, you know, which economic, economical, uh, political systems raise the standard of living for people, create wealth, create a middle class, who rise the poor up. And which systems don't. And um, we've tried numerous combinations of types of of, um, of systems. You know, in the 19th century, we have something as close as you can get to, you know, pure laissez-faire capitalism. And in the 20th century, we started experimenting with different types of statism. And, you know, just to give some 
some definitions. When I say statism, I, I mean a political system in which, a cent- which the state has a substantial centralized control over these social and economic affairs. And within a more free market oriented type of uh, state or type of you know uh, country, there wouldn't be that much controls over what people do in terms of their labor, how, you know, how they work, where they work, and all these different types of things. So in the 20th century, we've, we've tried, you know, mixed economies. We've tried, you know, socialism. We've tried communism. We tried um, the capitalism of the 50s in America. And um, later on, there's been some, you know, different areas in the world that have tried different things. So, I mean, I guess the best way to put this is, you know, look at a place like China. China started off uh, as some type of, you know, dynasties and stuff like this. And then it moved into, you know, you know pretty much feudalism at the time. And then, it, you know, transitioned into communism during the um, Cultural Revolution. And if you look at China and look at their growth and how it how it has been over the years, compare it to a place. And now China obviously is a very, very powerful and they have a huge economic uh, weight in the world. But compare that to Hong Kong. So Hong Kong 80 years ago was a fishing village with a very, very – it's a rock. There's no natural resources. There's nothing of value there. There's no timber. There's, there's, no, there's no oil. So it's just this rock fishing village that people used to you know, fish and hunt and all this other stuff. But you know, capitalism came in and then if you compare the, you know, the average income for somebody in America versus somebody in Hong Kong, Hong Kong is equal – to us. And Hong Kong and the economic freedom index is actually higher than us and it's easier to open a business and start a business and all these things compared to America and other, you know, Western European countries and other countries as well. So I think, you know, the first thing I, I kind of want to talk about is, is why I feel like this is what it is. But, you know, this is kind of gets into a broader thing and it goes into what economics is because this is essentially a talk on economics. And, you know, economics is a study uh, of the use of scarce resources that have alternative uses. So economics is a study of the use of scarce resources that have alternative uses. You know, examples of resources include land, you know, natural resources, capital, labor. There's never been enough resources to satisfy everyone completely. Trade-offs must be made on an individual and societal level. The decisions around how to allocate these resources to produce the best outputs is a central question of economics. Mainly it's how do we how do how does this all get into into the into the puzzle. How does all these puzzle pieces come together? You know, the land, the labor, the natural resources, the capital. How do we allocate these scarce resources? And you know, an analogy is kind of like in a battlefield with wounded soldiers. There are never enough doctors or nurses to go around. Some wounded are you know past the point of being saved. Others have a chance if they get urgent care, and you know, and will die if they don't. Others will recover without any urgent treatment. Thus, the limited medical resources must be allocated to maximize output. This is an economic problem as well as you know an issue that's going on actively right now in the world. The allocation of resources is critical to a nation's wealth. There are poor countries where are rich natu- you know with rich natural resources and rich countries with few natural resources like you know Hong Kong which is like a almost like a city state. Um, economics is a study of cause and effect. You know therefore economic policies are important to judge by their consequences and incentives rather than their goals and motivations and that's that's very very important point. You have to judge it by their consequences, consequences and incentives rather than the goals and motivations. And a well-meaning policy can have terrible unintended consequences, sometimes, you know, buried in second order or third order consequences as well. So, you know, something I want to just mention real quick and uh, talk about, you know, um, capitalism in a way is that, 
you know, capitalism is the realization of achieving your, your self-interest. And when I say self-interest, I mean your rational self-interest, the things that is going to make you flourish, things that are going to make you get better, things that are going to increase your happiness, increase your your wealth, increase your um, your skills. So, but, you know, people like to bring into the conversation exploitation a lot. And, you know, something from Adam Smith and from The Wealth of Nations um, that came out in 1776, he, meant, he made the, the quote that uh, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but regard, but uh, from their regard to their own self-interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love. Never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. So basically right there, it's, it's the trader principle. This is something that has been around for, for hundreds of years and is the idea that, okay, I just worked. I just mowed a lawn. I got 20 bucks. I want to go get a steak. Let's say I go to the store. The steak is $20. At that point in time, I value the steak more than my $20 and the person who's selling me the steak values the $20 more than their steak. I win. They win. There's no exploitation. There's no types of – you know, no, nobody's getting cheated. I value the meat more than I value the money in that particular time. Thus, there, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. It's a positive-sum game. And that's another thing that you know a lot of people bring into – you know, the talks of capitalism is that it's a zero-sum game. Now, when you include capitalism with statism in a lot of ways, meaning when there's intervention by the government, you know, aka subsidies, you know, corporate welfare, um, zoning laws that allow big corporations to, you know, dominate and overpopulate an area versus, you know, small mom and pop stores, you know, lessens competition. So, you know, government intervention generally lessens competition. And when you lessen competition, the the incentives for doing business change. The incentives for you know getting a profit change. Not only is it at that point you know you're you're just providing a better product. At that point, you're using state power to get rid of your um, your people, that, your competitors. You know what I mean. And um, something that is important to me is that that people understand why this is so important. You know and. I said that I, – I, and I said last podcast that I believe capitalism has lifted the most people out of poverty over the years. And um, just a quick thing and this is by uh, – this is actually not my idea. This is a, an idea by Deidre McCloskey, a uh, economist. Um, she uh, – you know, she's also a historian as well. She called it the, the great fact, you know, the homogeneous increase in human standard of living that began about 200 to 250 years ago. And this is at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Now, something just to quickly point out for the Industrial Revolution, during the Industrial Revolution, before that, everybody was pretty much poor, self-sustaining farmers. They, uh, you know, for every, if you had, you know, 10 kids, five would survive. Most of them wouldn't make it out of the age of, you know, two, you know three, four. Um, they would pass away because of disease and all these different things. Now, as soon as the Industrial Revolution started, you know, things changed. Wages, workers' wages rose 90 percent, 90 percent. And this is, this is what she calls the great fact and you know, other people refer to it as you know, the miracle. Um, it's not only the sense of being that you know, ordinary men and women but you know, have made – because you know, back in the day, there wasn't a chance for people to you know, leave the farm and you know, have leisure time. Pretty much you work from sundown to sunset. 
or sun out, you know, sun up the sunset, you know. Um, so for 99.7% of time as, you know, as humans, we've been around for at least, you know, the oldest thing dates us back to 400,000 years. For 99.7, 99.8% of that time, we didn't have any innovation. We didn't have any growth. There was, it was just pretty much a lot of the time hunter-gatherer um, cultures. It was cultures that did not um, evolve in terms of, I mean, yes, I'm not, I'm not shutting down um, the ancient cultures because I think the ancient cultures have a lot of wonderful things that are in there and a lot of wonderful things you can study and learn, especially the philosophies that came from a lot of these ancient cultures, um, so, you know, like in Roman Greek. Uh, in Greece, but for ninety nine percent, ninety nine point you know seven percent of that time, man's life on Earth was harsh. The, you know, he had it was no, his life on two legs was no better than on four um, at that point. And then all of a sudden, two hundred years, two hundred fifty years ago, in northwestern Europe, material riches start pouring forth, not only into the castles and manors of the royalty and nobility, but in the humble homes of the peasants and uh, the remainders of the society. I know what caused this, what, 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 what drove this? And what drove this was innovation. And innovation is the main tool, one of the main tools in capitalism that keeps it going, that keeps everything moving. So as things, you know, and people like to say technology kills, you know, technology kills jobs, technology kills things. Well, if you look at the industrial revolution, so many different things came into effect within a technological standpoint. They came in, you know, becoming, you know, innovative processes that came in and, you know, people might think that destroyed jobs. But if you look at today and look at back then, there's more jobs now than there ever were back then. And primarily because of the innovation that people have gotten into. But, you know, there's something, I mean, all this innovation, all this stuff is, is great and it's interesting and it really makes, makes me want to understand this stuff more and get more into this. But something that people don't talk about right now at least, is the way capitalism is affecting poverty in the world today. So this is a number by the United Nations. It's not me. This is not some uh, free market uh, you know, affiliation. This is the United Nations saying that over a billion people have been lifted out of poverty since 1990. Since 1990. Now, this is, this is ridiculous. I mean, just this fact alone People should be dancing in the streets, but nobody nobody takes this seriously. No one talks about this. You know, uh, Stephen Pinker in his book Enlightenment Now he mentions that you know if the New York Times ran the headline, they could have run this headline: "The number of people in extreme poverty fell by 137,000 since yesterday, every day for the last 25 years." That's astounding. But, you know, that's not how news works. They don't report necessarily the positive stuff all the time. But think about that. Every day for the last 25 years, they could have reported 137,000 people have been lifted from extreme poverty, which is, which is living on $1.90 a day. So this right here is something that we need to celebrate whether or not you are a socialist, whether or not you are a capitalist, whether or not you support free markets, whether or not you support you know, so, you know, state control, whether or not you're a, you know, a mixed economy type of person. This is something to celebrate. And you know, these people were lifted out of poverty not because of foreign aid, even though foreign aid does help, but a lot of times foreign aid hurts. Like So for instance, a lot of uh, African farmers get in the free food that we give them. 
So these farmers are trying to, you know, have, they have a market in Africa. They're trying to build their their market by selling their goods. We bring in free goods. Free goods beat their prices, so people take the free goods, and thus they become poor forever. And they don't. They're not able to rise up. But the good news is, Africa, India, and China have been have been people. Millions and millions of people have been lifting out of poverty, out of these areas. And there's something to say about that. And um, it's it's incredible to me that we don't focus on this fact, and we don't focus that since China, since India, and parts of Africa have liberalized their economies, meaning. They've allowed people to open businesses. They've uh, encouraged the idea of uh, private property. They encouraged the idea of property rights. They encouraged the idea of um, individual rights. You know, th- since the, these things have happened, um, they decided to uh, to make the changes in their countries, and people have been lifted out of poverty. You know, global poverty has been uh, rate has been halved in the last twenty years. Halved. Nobody seems to be focusing on this stuff. And I want to focus on this particular point the most today because I think it's the most powerful and the most hard thing to ignore. So, I mean, since 2000, the acceleration of growth in developing countries has cut the number in half, like I said. But, you know, poverty outside China, 280 million since 2000. People have been lifted out of poverty. Between 81 and 2000, China lifted 680 million people out of poverty. And yes, there's a lot of things they could do to fix their economy and fix society, especially with their uh, the new social numbers that they're trying to get in. But how did this happen? This wasn't something – this wasn't a fluke. This wasn't some type of you know coincidence. This was deliberate things that, that came into effect. So I think we need to actually see that – in China, the middle class is, is on fire. You know, a new study showed that 76% of China's urban populations will be considered middle class by 2022. That's insane. That's insane. And the thing is, you know, the, the standard of living there is increasing as well. And, th- and, that's, and that's what happens. When the standard of living increases, things in your country will change. You know, as as they're able to create a standard of living and people are able to support their families, there won't be needs or a need for you know people's children to go work anymore. And this was a case in, in the United States. I have friends that their grandfathers worked in coal mines, unfortunately, you know, a tough, rough life. But if they didn't, their family wouldn't eat. And this was a this was a fact, and I've heard this from the people themselves, and it's it's a horrible fact that you know that it took this long in human history for us to become you know generally in the world you know more wealthy, but this is this is something that is changing around the world, and but Africa Af- it's beautiful. Africa, like I said, Africa is growing now. One out of seven people on Earth live in Africa right now, and the continent shares the world's population. You know, it's bound to it's bound to increase. You know, because Africa's fertility rate remains high, pretty much higher than anywhere else in the world. You know, the trends continue. There'll be more people in Nigeria than the United States by 2050. But something to something that's really important is that you know, in 1999, 58 percent of Africans lived on less than a dollar ninety a day. You know, and that's that's horrific. It's horrific poverty. But by 2011, 44 percent of Africans lived on that income. All while, you know, the African population rose from 650 billion to 1 billion. If that, if that trend, you know, continues to, to happen, Africa's absolute poverty rate will be, 
you know, will fall to 24 percent by 2030. This is great news. I mean, the, the thing is, like in the world, things don't work out like real fast, real quick. This is not how the world moves, primarily because lots of changes, you know, need to take time. There needs to be some, you know, foundations set. But this news right here about Africa's reduction in poverty rate tells me a, a very, very important thing. What we see in China, what we see in India today, what we see in these countries where people are starting to leave extreme poverty and move into the middle class, what we're starting to see now is Africa is the next continent, you know, and the countries within Africa are the next countries to be lifting themselves out of poverty. And, you know, hopefully, because the thing is like, imagine, imagine Elon Musk, right? That's one person. Imagine somebody like Bill Gates. It's another person. Imagine somebody like Steve Jobs. It's another person. Now, imagine... And I w- I'm very sure of this. There's a lot of people in the world, in a lot of these impoverished countries, in a lot of these impoverished areas, that have the ability to create things as great or greater than these men and you know and women uh, throughout history. So, th- the thing is that they don't have the ability to because their governments are either corrupt. There's a lot of violence, and there's a lot of things going on, like we see in Sub-Saharan Africa. There's there's a tons of violence, and there's tons of you know, corruption within their governments that have, you know, imposed central control over their economies, you know, uh, inflati- you know inflationary, uh, you know, in- inflating their monetary supply and, you know, prices and wages and all these other things that have caused these areas to become, you know, quote unquote, um, not, you know, not progressing, you know. Um, but the most most important thing I can take from this personally and kind of look at this is that there needs to be an understanding that you know these figures that i just mentioned the the reduction in poverty overall worldwide the reduction of you know which the reduction of poverty aka means the reduction of suffering and you know china and the rest of the world that are you know experiencing these types of lift of poverty are really going to be the next countries in the world the next areas in the world where we're going to start be, we're going to start seeing innovation rise on a level we've never seen. Now, something else that I that I was thinking about and and kind of trying to understand is you know when it comes to you know capitalism, when it comes to you know the understandings of where I'm coming from at least is understanding that when it comes you know understanding that there isn't there's no force being there's no force being applied. When I sell you something, like we talked about the baker, we talked about um, all these things. So, like for instance, you know, another example is Apple, right? A lot of people have Apple products. I have a few Apple products myself. I have a MacBook and all these other things. But something that people understand is that okay, I want to get an iPhone, three hundred dollars of the contract or whatever. At that moment, when I buy, this is Econ one hundred and one. When I get the iPhone, what am I thinking? Am I thinking that it's worth exactly three hundred? No, no. I'm, 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 I'm thinking that the iPhone is worth more to me than three hundred. So I'm willing to pay three hundred because why would I? Why would I buy it then? You know. And the thing is, at the end of the day, the iPhone provides value to me more, way more than three hundred. I'm able to set up meetings. I'm able to set up calls. I'm able to do many different things on my phone that I, you know, if I didn't have one, I wouldn't be able to be as successful. I wouldn't find as much value. I'm able to read books. I'm able to listen to books. So I'm gaining a ton of value. For three hundred dollars, so I—I I mean, this has given me more value than three hundred dollars. My phones, you know, or my computer, right? So iPhone, three hundred dollars. At that point, 
I'm winning because I am getting a benefit. I'm making – I mean the value of what I paid, it's, it's way worth more than it. But Apple, why do they sell the iPhone for $300? They can make a profit on it. I think iPhones are – they have a 60 percent profit margin, which is ridiculous. I wish I had a 60 percent profit margin on anything I ever sold. But when they're selling this to you, they're making a profit as well. But no one's being hurt in that transaction. No one's being hurt. And you know, people like to point at Foxconn and they talk about you know, the, uh, these areas and these little you know, cities that have you know, the exploitation of the, of the workers in China and all this other stuff. Now, I, I just want to point this out and this is, where it comes, this is where it comes down to and this is a tough, tough answer is, OK, if you didn't want these people to work in a Foxconn lab or something like this, their other alternative – their other alternative, which you know, in Foxconn, you could probably gain some transferable skills and learn a lot of different things dealing with technology and all this stuff. They either have to join, you know, a sweatshop factory, which is arguably just as bad, if not worse, or they would have to go back into the fields. Now, the fields in the sweatshop factory do not pay as ba- as as much as Foxconn does, based on you know some data, but. The fact is, like me not wanting them to work there, and me expecting that you know all the countries in the world have to have the same standards as Western countries. It's it's just you know in all the countries in the world they don't have those standards that they have to move to them immediately. It just it's it to be honest with you, it's kind of you're you're kind of keeping you want to keep these people impoverished if you really believe that, and I I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean if you I mean just. Think about it. If, if they're not able to work in Foxconn and move from you know lower middle class, I mean from from poverty to lower middle class to middle class, and hopefully higher one day, then I'm I'm con- I'm condemning them to a life on the on the rice paddies. I'm condemning them to this type of life. So we need to look into you know how these people are getting out, how these people are are, are rising themselves from from all these um, horrible situations of, of extreme poverty, and. That's what we should be focusing on when we look at, you know, economics. You know, something like I, I, you know, something I said earlier is, you know, economics essentially is a study of the use of scarce resources that have alternative uses. And, you know, economics is cause, a study of cause and effects. You know, economic policies are important to judge by their consequences and incentives. What's the consequence of liberalizing your economy? More people are, are taken out of poverty. More people are able to, for for once in their life, build some type of wealth and get themselves into a better position. Like we talked about, you know, the middle class in China is rising. It's on fire. This is great to hear. This is great news. Everybody should be jumping in the streets celebrating that in the last 30 to 40 years, a billion people have been lifted out of poverty primarily because of the liberalization of their governments and liberalization more so of their economics. So this is, this is essential, you know, and if we don't look at this and take it in, people are going to just put out the myths and I think, you know, a lot of um, fallacies about, you know, capitalism. So they talk about, you know, um, a lot of people talk about inherited wealth, but what, what other people don't mention is that 70% of rich families lose their wealth by the second generation and about 90% of rich, you know, of rich families lose their wealth by the third. This is a fact. This is uh, on Time. This is from Time Magazine. It was on CNN. Um, you know the, the old saying from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. It's true. 
it's true. There's data behind this. But – and uh, this was done by um, the Williams Group Wealth Consultancy. But this is you know based on numbers and you guys can all look this up and I, I'll hopefully put up uh, show notes with um, some of the data that I have. But again, there's a lot of things that stop – You know, there's a lot of things in today's world, in today's government, in today's economics that stop people from succeeding. So – Something I mentioned last time with Misha when I was hanging out here, you know, having a conversation is occupational licensing. Now, my 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 opinion on occupational licensing is that it's it's a bit overdone and it's a type of regulation that essentially keeps people, uh, you know, keeps poor people away from succeeding. So, something I mentioned last time and this isn't an, an anecdote. This is uh this is straight from uh, from their um, from their rules in Tennessee. Takes three hundred hours to become a shampooer in Tennessee. Three hundred hours. So <laughs> you can imagine that most people who do not have you know leisure of time to spend three hundred hours, you know, not getting paid their their money and all this stuff to to become a hair you know a washing of hair. Excuse me, in the salon, then honestly, um, we're not looking at this correctly. If it takes 300 hours to just shampoo hair in Tennessee, there's a lot of people who don't have 300 hours to spare that could go there and get the job and start making money and start making a living. But again, the occupational licensing stops them from doing that. And it, it just, you know, in Michigan requires more training for makeup artists than car mechanics. That's, that's real. That is real. It takes 400 hours of, on, uh, of training and skills. 400 hours. And you know, it's, it's cost people, and uh, according to the Michigan Capital Confidential, uh, cost people somewhere up, upwards of $25,000 on their education. For makeup artists, that is. You know, for become a certified auto mechanic, Michigan doesn't require any mandatory classes. Just passing some exams and paying the $25 state fee. So you could see how a lot of this stuff is just stopping people from getting positions that would allow them you know, to get themselves into a, to a better position in their life. So you could see how the occupational licensing for you know, statisticians licenses and you know, the occupational licensing for a certified auto mechanic, how different they are. But the thing is the licensing also increases the price of the education, increases the price of all this stuff. $25,000, uh, one lady told the uh, Michigan Capital paper. So obviously there's something wrong here with occupational licensing. And you know, occupational licensing covers about 30% of U.S. workers. That's 30% of people need a license to perform their jobs. I think it's time to, you know, to examine occupational licensing, particularly examine how it's hurting the impoverished people in this country. And that's something we need to take into effect. That's something we need to understand. You know, and, you know, obviously there's, there's tons of things that, that people bring up. Another thing is, you know, the lack, you know, EpiPens and how they rose in, in price. You know, I think they increased, uh, a two-pack increased from about 100 in 2007 to 600 at the end of May 2016. But something people don't mention is that how many competitors are there to the EpiPen? 
Not many. I I mean, I've just researching, you know, the last couple of days and understanding this. There isn't really a competitor. So when there isn't a competitor, people can, you know, play with the prices. And, you know, epinephrine is relatively extremely cheap. I mean, just a few cents per dose. The complications come from producing, you know, the easy auto-injecting device, you know, that the EpiPen has. But, you know, the company Mylan owns the auto-injector device design. So competitors must find workarounds in the device to deliver the epinephrine to the, to the patient's body. And this is why I, at times I feel patenting in a lot of ways prevents market innovation. It prevents people from allowing solutions, allowing, you know, alternative solutions to a product that basically has a monopoly on on their design. Now, if if this is something that is created um, by our 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 government, not necessarily the economics. So this would you know if this wasn't there, then obviously the red tape you know given by the FDA wouldn't exist. Another thing you know it, it takes an average I think of twelve years for a drug to become uh, legal. You know, the FDA to regulate a drug takes about 12 years. Now, how many people have suffered and died by not using experimental medication or medication that's being built for certain things because of these regulations? And that's something, you know, we have to look at the externalities of, of certain things. Now, I'm not saying regulations are bad and blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying we have to look at specific things that are affecting specific people and how we can mitigate the costs and how we can mitigate the damage done by some of these, you know, and a lot of these things are not done on purpose. It's just unforeseen consequences. Nobody thought that, you know, you know, Michigan require more trading for a makeup artist than a car mechanic. You, when you when you get your car fixed, you don't think this person doesn't have to take any mandatory, you know, classes. But he doesn't. You know, but when you go to a makeup artist, they do. And there's licensing behind it. And if there wasn't licensing behind it, there'd be a lot more people doing makeup and they'd be able to make a living and a lot more people would be able to go to these people and get, you know, get and the prices would go down because there's, you know, there's a big, you know, big supply of people and the prices would rise, would drop. I mean, so we have to, we have to look at, you know, how the government interaction with the, econo- with the economics, how it's interacting, you know, and, and if it's interacting Right, because we don't live in a laissez-faire system. The government has heavily interacted with our with our economy. We in America, we have a mixed economy. Um, and if you look at the Economic Freedom Index, you know I don't think America is even top five in the Economic Freedom Index. And we need to see, you know, what are we doing, and how we can make the change is necessary to allow more people that are impoverished to get jobs and to be able for them to understand things. Another thing I can't stand, you know, about government intervention, tariffs. You have the Trump administration stupidly um, putting tariffs on things. Now, I, this, has been, this has been Econ 101 for the last, you know, 200 years since mercantilism that you put tariffs on something, that extra price that goes there, it's definitely going to be put onto the consumers. Definitely. You know, and a lot of people think that, you know, you know, on the right, some people on, you know, the right feel that, you know, oh, tariffs, you know, some people on the left as well think that tariffs 
are going to save the <laughs> save the economy. They're going to bring jobs back. But what most people don't understand is that you know jobs that have gone to other countries like Mexico and China only account for ten about ten percent of jobs lost. The majority of jobs, ninety percent of have been lost because of technology, because of automation. So I think people need to understand that as time goes on, as things increases, automation has pushed people out of their jobs more so than, you know, work from, you know, overseas or from Mexico or something like this. So I think that's just a fallacy and I think it's a dangerous one. I think it's a dangerous one because tariffs have a consequence. People just, you know, when they hear that, oh, we need to make things fair, fair trade and all this, you know, stupid buzzwords that basically don't have any basis in in reality. Honestly, it just doesn't. And um, what, what's going on right now is, uh, is, is disheartening because if you look at what the tariffs have caused. So right now, you know, Utah, Utah Metalworking Company cancels expansion plans because of the tariffs. You know, overnight, what was it? Uh, steel rose 67 percent. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And people need to understand that this is not sustainable. It just isn't. So like the guy uh, from the, the Utah Metalworking Company mentioned that, you know, the business purchases roughly $1 million worth of steel every year. So the 25% import tax, which is a tariff on imported steel means that they will face about a new $200,000 overhead cost. So just the overhead cost is just inflating by $200,000. Thus, they have to stop their expansion plans. Thus, they have to lay off people. See, this is how you destroy an economy. This is how you destroy capitalism. This is how you, this is how you keep chipping away at it until it becomes this husk of what we used to have in a lot of ways and stuff that we, we've been missing over time. So, yeah, these things are not going to help people out. This expansion was in Utah was supposed to bring in, you know, hire 25 percent more employees. That's a huge expansion. But boom, the overhead cost, the, and, you know, obviously this is going to kill their business. And this is happening to business to business to business all over the all over the country. You had the um, auto companies, Ford, GM, uh, Chrysler, Toyota, Mitsubishi, I believe, I think even uh, Volkswagen. They came and they, they, they went to Washington and had a meeting and saying these tariffs are going to increase the cost of, of cars. Why? Oh, well, aluminum and steel are major, are major uh, resources used in car making. So if the price of these resources go up, the price of the car at the end of the day will go up. And they've estimated somewhere on top of you know, $5,000 added, $5,000 added to your car price. That's ridiculous. No American can afford an extra $5,000 on their car price. And this is this is why the the economic policy of this current administration is so asinine and stupid. Because it's it's a feel good policy. Oh, if it feels good, do it. You know that stupid George W. Bush quote. And this is exactly what this this policy is about. Is if it feels good, oh yeah, let's do tariffs. It sounds good. It makes people roar and the things, but they have no idea what it's about. Nobody has ever read the Wealth of Nations. And the thing is, like, you don't have to read that. Just spend five minutes on YouTube and look up tariffs. There's a million videos that describe you know, tariffs and their, their costs and benefits. And the costs way out, way out, you know, the benefits, way outweigh it. 
And it's it's amazing to me that people continue to believe things that are just false. Just false. And this have no basis in in reality. And no basis on an understanding in how the government works. An understanding of how economics works. An understanding that, oh, it's basically a tax on businesses. And, you know, the businesses are not going to just suck up the $200,000 increase on their overhead. How are they going to make a profit? They're not going to survive. They're going to have to lay off everybody. No more jobs for anybody that works there. They're going to have to increase the prices on the consumers. And this has been time and time again proven from Milton Friedman to, you know, to Frederick Hayek to people before them that have talked about tariffs. And pretty much any left-wing and right-wing economist would, and anybody in the middle would agree with me on this. But it's completely – it just boggles my mind that people think this is a good idea. And these are things that we have to look into and, and talk to people about and educate ourselves on. You know, There's a lot of good people out there that have given amazing information and that have, that have offered me amazing insight on this stuff. You know, like I mentioned, uh, the economist Deidre McCloskey, um, Frederick Hayek, um, Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell, Walter E. Williams. I mean, these are people that have. I mean, obviously Adam Smith, and then if you want, you know, if you want to get into the Austrian school, you have, which is obviously Frederick Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, um, Karl Menger. You know, and, and you know, some people like to bring up the fact or like to bring up points of, you know, in the discussion we had last time. We talked about the labor theory. Uh, you know, Misha talked about the labor theory of value. That you know, Mar- Mark said that your value of of the product, you know, of your labor comes from you know, your value comes from labor, basically. So I'm just going to quickly break this down and get this out of the way because I feel like something I didn't get to uh, get to talk about. But so this is basically what it means. For instance, I spend the same amount of time of time and, and labor painting a picture in the same room. With the same equipment and utensils, time and labor, so is Picasso. According to Marx's labor theory of value, our paintings are worth the same. They have the same value. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. This is why, you know, when the Austrian school came into and came into into being, and Karl Menger talked about the subjective theory of value. That value for a lot of people is subjective. You might view value in something that I have no value in. One man's trash is another man's treasure. To quote um, that old saying, and that's true. Some people have no value in designer shades. They might think it's useless, but there's a lot of people that will pay $300, $400, $500 for designer sunglasses. And this is subjective. Value is subjective to people. It's not, obje- you know, it's not something you can quantify like Marx is talking about. And just think about it. I'm sitting in a room painting something and I'm a decent, very, very, very decent painter. I mean, I can do a few things here and there. So, but then Picasso is in the same room, same utensils, same amount of time. According to Marx, that means our stuff is equal. The value in both our paintings are worth the same. That to me just doesn't make any sense. And if you think about it, you probably come to the same conclusion. Now, you look at countries where, you know, other systems like socialism have, have gone on. Look at a place like um, Venezuela. Venezuela has a tremendous amount of natural resources. They have more reserve oil than Saudi Arabia. What? That's crazy. But the people are starving in the streets. 
They say there's no more dogs and cats in Caracas because everybody's unfortunately killed them and eat them all because there's no food there. There's videos of people chasing trucks and not, not regular trucks, garbage trucks trying to find food. This is the state their, their government's in. And the thing about it and the sad thing about it is that once, once, the, once they nationalize all this stuff, Things started to go downhill. Once they elected uh, Chavez and then Maduro after him, things started to go downhill. And right now it costs one million, one million bolivars, which is their you know, currency, to buy a cup of coffee. One million. So one million bolivars to get a cup of coffee. And, and to translate to you guys, what one million bolivars is in, in, in USD, in US currency, it's 26 cents. So 26 cents of American money. American coinage is equal to one million dollars in Venezuela, and I, I just—it's unbelievable that people think that this is only due to the authoritarian nature of Maduro. No, 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 no. You had people like Jeremy Corbyn um, talking and, and coming and meeting with Chavez and saying, "This is 21st century socialism. This is things are going to change." Blah, blah, blah. Things are going to be great. Where are they now? Where's, where's, where are these people now talking about Venezuela and the greatness of them? And you look at a country like Chile that liberalized their government, liberalized their economy. They're doing very, very well. And they used to be the poorest nation, the poorest nation in South America. Now they're probably one of the richest next to Brazil. But Brazil has been suffering too because a lot of their policies. But again, I'm not here to to tell you you have to agree with me. I'm not here to tell you you have to think that free markets are the way to go and that if you are a socialist, you're stupid. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there's empirical evidence out there. There's endless amounts of evidence out there that shows that when you liberalize and free up your, free up your you know, economy, that the people in those you know, people in those societies tend to rise themselves out of poverty. Now, I this is not something that I you know these are not studies that I have done. I've not you know manipulated any of the data. Like I said, the UN has talked about this, and it's it's something that we need to look into, and it's something we need to understand. You know and. There's a lot of people out there that will tend to look at this and tend to, you know, see things from from a different perspective and say, well, this is just BS. This is just you, you know, proselytizing and talking about your beliefs. And in a way, it is correct. It is. I am a capitalist, a proud one, and I'm a proud capitalist not because of what it's done for me, but I'm a proud capitalist for what it's done to society, what it's done across the world. And granted, like I said, it's the uh, this is the understanding. This is the maximizing. This is the you know. This is how we how we you know serve our self interest, like Adam Smith said. You know, the baker bakes. You know, the bread not because he he wants me to feel good and he wants me to give me the bread and he bakes the bread so he can make money and feed his family. I get it, so I can you know I I work and pay him so I can feed my family. It's a win-win situation. The trader principle. Look into it, guys. It's, I think it's something that we need to check, check and see if 
more of this or less of this is something we need in our society? And, you know, whatever the answer is, and I obviously think the answer is we need more of this in the society. We need more freedom. We need less red tape stopping people from achieving their dreams and opening up their own businesses and, you know, uh, getting jobs that they thought, you know, would be something fascinating and fun like becoming a makeup artist but wouldn't require $25,000 worth of schooling and as well as, you know, countless hours of, of, uh, of classes. But just remember that in 2012, 54% of China's urban households were considered mass middle class, meaning they've earned a good amount of money. But in 2022, 54% will be upper middle class in China. This is great news, fantastic news. And people are leaving in China. People are, are jumping out of extreme poverty. Like I said, it's, it's, un, it's astounding at how, how amazing this is. And where this is going. You know, between 1990 and 2010, you know, like I said, the, the amount of people leaving poverty is just it's, – it's astounding to me. And I think if we look at the effects that capitalism has had around the world, particularly in these impoverished areas and whether or not these people are better off with a more liberalized economy or better off with a more – you know, dictatorship, you know, type of centralized control, socialism in some areas, communism in other areas. Are they better off? How did how did we gain how did how did the world gain this wealth? How did the West gain this wealth? People will say exploitation. Okay? How did then explain Hong Kong to me? Who did Hong Kong exploitate? How did they become as rich as us? You know, by GDP is one measure, you know, um, but they became as rich as us. In less, less time than this country has been around. We just had the 4th of July, right? Hong Kong, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, in less than half of the time this country has been around, Hong Kong has achieved the same exact economic output as us in a lot of ways. This tells you something, guys. This tells you that whatever Hong Kong's doing right now maybe should be modeled in other places so they can lift themselves out of poverty. And again, Hong Kong has no natural resources. Imagine if Hong Kong had the resources of Venezuela with the oil. Imagine where they would be GDP-wise. Way above us, that's for sure. And I think as you'll see things continue to grow, as you th see things continue to change, this is, this is the, this the beginning. And like I said, you know, I mentioned in Steven Pinker, who's a psychologist and linguist, in his book, he mentioned that if the New York Times ran, the number of people in extreme poverty fell by 137,000 since yesterday. Every day for the last 25 years, it would be correct. This is, this is astounding. You know, people like to say the phrase, the, the poor is getting poorer and the rich are getting richer. No, no, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting richer as well. And that's just the way it's been working. It's not a zero sum. There's no fixed pie. You know, and then everybody starts taking pieces of the pie. Before the Industrial Revolution, before capitalism, that was the case. If you wanted more of the pie, you had to force yourself upon a society to take that pie. But now what, does, what happens? When the pie gets too, you know, too you know, full, people are taking too much of it. Innovation happens. Boom, Microsoft. Boom, SpaceX. Amazon. 
U.S. Standard Oil to go back a few uh, a few years ago. These things – and you know what? For uh, Rockefeller when he had U.S. Standard Oil, everybody thought – and you know what? He originally got rich because of kerosene. He was doing great with kerosene. He was making a lot of money. But then what happened? Edison came in and kerosene was used for lanterns. What happened to his kerosene business? It completely decimated, got destroyed. How did it get destroyed? By creative destruction, termed by Joseph Schumpeter. That talks about, you know, entrepreneurs come in, innovators come in, and, you know, people who are inventors come in, create something that shake up the market so much that the former industries, that the former big businesses start to, you know, dissolve in this field. What happened to Rockefeller? Thomas Edison came in with a light bulb. No need for kerosene anymore to light your house. So the kerosene business got disappeared. But then what did he end up doing? He realized, oh, maybe a byproduct of this kerosene stuff could be, you know, gasoline. And then that's how he became uh, even richer with gasoline. So again, but the thing is everybody thought when he, once he had you know, a significant amount of the market share, everybody thought that he would raise prices. But he, and he didn't. He kept prices low. He kept the prices low because he knew at the moment he raised prices, boom, another type of creative destruction would have came in, whether it was through production or whether it was through creating a whole new type of you know, industry like light bulbs. Um, that he would suffer the consequences. So he kept his prices low. And this is what people don't understand is that, you know, monopolies for the most part throughout history have always been supported by government. The only, the only natural monopoly I know of is the De Beers Diamond Company in uh, Africa that mine diamonds. That's the only, con- that's the only company that I know is a, is a natural monopoly. I can I, I only put my mind on it. Everywhere else, they either had government intervention, government force, aka, you know, using the government to force, you know, co- competitors, to force, you know, new, you know, make to, to increase the barriers to entry by regulations. You know, so when I, when I talked last time, the last conversation, I said the incentives today are messed up. And yes, they are messed up. Because when you create regulations to increase barriers to entry, at that point, the ins- at that point, you know, there's there's no way for people to compete with a firm that got this type of special privilege. That's why I mean, that's why I'm generally against all types of subsidies, all types of corporate welfare, because no company should get any type of welfare from the, welfare from the government. No company. Now, if a company and you know, if the government is having contracts and they're bidding stuff out, that's fine. But the moment you start giving subsidies and all this stuff, you you are you are creating artificial demand in a lot of ways. I mean, you're creating when you when you do that, there's issues. I mean, look at what happened with Solyndra and um, some of that, some of the issues there, primarily because you know they were given um, subsidies that you know they thought they could you know produce more, but the demand wasn't really there for them. Demand wasn't really there, and I think the most important thing I can I can you know kind of end on today, and kind of you know bring it home, is that for me you know capitalism isn't about you know what, this this whole discussion you know and I, I hope to bring Misha back in and we can have an actual formal debate with a moderator and uh, I hope to get other people in this talk. I want to bring people from all types of disciplines, whether they're socialists, communists, even um, you know, people who think uh, differently than I, to talk about these issues. Because I, I'm a, 
I describe myself politically a classical liberal libertarian and economically I'm a supporter of free markets um, and um, free enterprise. And I, I do believe that this is the best system currently ever in existence that has lifted – the way I, I, I do that and the way I justify that is by looking at how many people have been lifted out of poverty. 300 years ago, everybody was poor. Everybody except a few leaders and dictators throughout you know, the ancient world. But virtually everybody was poor. Boom. Industrial revolution, capitalism, middle class became a thing. There was no such thing as a middle class. Either you were some type of you know, nobility or you were a peasant for most of, of human existence. But then this, this allowed us to, to change things. And we have to look at the results. We have to look at, you know, like I said earlier, we have to look at the consequences and incentives rather than the goals and the motivations. Because my goal with occupational licensing is to make sure that only the best people are allowed to work in this type of field. But an unintended consequence, which I mentioned earlier, an unintended consequence is that it's expensive. It rose, it rose the price for all this stuff and people that could get this job but don't have the ability to take time to get this job can't. I'm worried about the people that are impoverished. I'm, I'm, I'm generally concerned for poor people and people that don't have the ability to take 300 hours of their day to learn how to shampoo somebody's hair to make, some, make a living. I'm generally concerned that the schooling system in this country and specifically in the metro Detroit area is not so great. You know, I, you know, people, there's high schools when I was around that you paid private high schools, $10,000, $11,000. You get the best education you could possibly imagine. Detroit public high schools in some cases get $13,000 and there's, they can't reach their, their age level, to their grade level. It's not the fault of the kids. It's not necessarily the fault of the teachers. It's the fault of the administrators. This is why I'm a big supporter of uh, vouchers. Let the money follow the kids, not the institution. Be and the thing is like what well, this is a double whammy. You have bad schools. The schools don't educate the kids. They can't get the, the, the transferable skills to go onto the market. Then you have something like a minimum wage increase, which we can talk about this in another show. A minimum wage increase, which will then price out the people that don't have the skills to match a um, to match the uh, the wage that was set. So, if somebody you know coming from a high school that that can't reach their grade level, if they raise the wages to a certain level, then they will never get a job because somebody who's you know more educated or has more experience will get it over them all the time. And this is a vicious cycle and this is what leads people to drugs. It leads people to crime. It leads people to gangs is from the schools not educating them correctly and not having a good system to then not being able to find a job because either they're outpriced or either because of some other issues that are dealt with you know, labor regulations and they aren't able to get a job and they move into the black and gray market. Now, what I want to see is the ability for all people, all creeds, colors, ethnicities, religions in this country and around the world to be able to achieve their dreams, to fight for their, fight for their rights, fight for their freedom, to fight for their happiness. You know, 
what 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 capitalism is to me is about is 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 a fundamental tool we can use to attain our flourishing to attain eudaimonia, which means human flourishing. My my job doesn't make me happy, but the the value and meaning that I get through my job makes me happy, and I feel like that's the way for a lot of people. You know, obviously the income and everything makes you happy, but what you get the 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 way you're affecting society and the business and the people around you within the job is what keeps you there and what keeps you going. And people are starting to lose that now. And you have you have people from government like our current administration who doesn't think that um, economic freedom is the way to go. So they impose tariffs which kill businesses and are going to increase prices on steel, cars, everything you can think of. Canada just hit us with a huge tariff. China is coming back at it, clapping back at us with huge tariffs. We're going to start feeling the pain with these tariffs. We have to prepare ourselves. Number one, we have to start talking to people and educating them on our positions, educate them on our minds, educate them where we're coming from. But also we have to come into the position of understanding that we can attain our happiness. We can attain our purpose. And I think one of the best tools to do that is economic freedom. And I think the more economic freedom we have as a society, the more economic freedom we have as individuals, it's the best chance we have to um, get uh, to the next level. So I just want to thank you and uh, for listening and I hope you have a great day. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.